This is episode 129 of the Beyond the Food Show, and today we're talking to Dr. Carrie Anderson about the impact of food insecurity on our brain and then on our eating behavior. You're going to be blown away by this one. Ready? Let's do this. My name is Stephanie Dodier, clinical nutritionist. I reversed my diagnosis of anxiety, depression, adrenal fatigue, and obesity by going beyond the food. I can tell you one thing, that willpower, discipline, and deprivation aren't the permanent solution to transforming your relationship to food. So how do you leave overeating, emotional eating, food craving, and binging behind you so you have the food freedom to achieve all of your goal and be happy now? As a top 25 alternative health podcast in the world, this is the Beyond the Food Show. Hey ladies, Stephanie Dodier, and today, no word of a lie, you're going to be blown away with this interview from Dr. Carrie Anderson. I could have talked to her for hours. And we deep dive into the concept that is called food insecurities. And at first, when she started to talk about that, I thought, well, that's not going to apply to my listeners because most of them have had food abundance their whole life. But what she explained is how our brain perceives food restriction. And it doesn't have to be about us getting the food, but simply the thought of not being able to get the food choices as wide as possible as we want. And then I realized, oh my God, that's all of us. Now, Dr. Carrie Anderson is a doctorate in food behavior. That's what she does. That's what she teach every day. And she bridged that gap between the science of how the brains function for everything in life and how that knowledge then drives heating behavior for us ladies here listening to this podcast. So it's a magnificent interview. And I think you're going to like Dr. Carrie Anderson. She's a licensed psychotherapist and a certified eating disorder specialist. And she's been in this business for 27 years. She actually has a great offer for you at the end of the podcast. But most of all, she leads us to a solution that is costless, that can be done right now in your home without having to attend any course or take any special certification. One very simple solution to food insecurity and all the ramification of binging and overeating and craving. And all of you can do this. So stick to the end of the interview to get that solution and you can have a real impact on your eating behavior. So if you're ready, let's go into the interview. Welcome to the show, Carrie. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. I am very excited to have you on. Carrie was recommended to me by a previous guest, Rebecca, and I think we're going to have a good conversation. And like I do with many guests, I want to start with your own personal journey. And I want us to go back to 1985. You just graduated from a program in exercise and science and nutrition. You were an athlete. 
right? Distance cycling, playing tennis, and you were attending this certification program and they weighed you. Right, underwater. Yeah. How did that unfold the journey of bringing you here today? Well, I was working as an exercise physiologist and a program developer at a fitness club. And so I went down to Oregon to attend Covert Bailey's Fitter Fat certification program. And at that time, of course, he was all over the bestseller lists. And so, of course, I had already had a background of body image issues already in an eating disorder and dieting background. But I think this was really a turning point for me because I really felt I was fit, right? And so they underwater weighed, hydrostatic weighing, everybody that was there. And I come out and he looks at me and I thought I was really fit. I was in a tennis league and whatnot. And he said, well, actually, Carrie, you're fat. And I said, well, what do you mean? She goes, you're over 30% body fat, which is essentially obese. And so, you know, having worked with fitness, I would have thought that he would have taken into consideration my body type and my muscle mass. And my muscle mass has always been high. And so over 100 pounds of just lean mass. But anyway, nonetheless, it really triggered me. And so rather than just continuing on in my lifestyle, which was very healthy, it triggered me into more dieting, which triggered more binge eating, and it just cycled out of control. And it wasn't until the late 80s that I actually got treatment. So my eating disorder actually started after I finished Weight Watchers at 15 years old. I was the superstar in the basement of this church that weighed in every week. And I loved being the mascot for all these women that were repeaters. And here I come in and I do everything perfectly and the weight graph just looks perfectly down. And then as soon as I finished that, I had trouble with this boy. And so I started binging. And this counteraction, which Michelle May and I talk about in terms of the pendulum swing of the more restrictive you become, the more that you overeat. And in my case, binge, it just became a cyclical out of control. And as an athlete and as somebody that worked in the nutrition and fitness field, of course, it was even more and equally humiliating for my weight to cycle. It is an observation, and I'm sure you've been in this world for a longer period than me, but an observation that I have is a lot of us in the field of nutrition and exercising actually have either an undiagnosed eating disorder or struggling with a relationship to food. Is that your observation too? Oh, absolutely. We are obsessed with dieting, which involves food and exercise. We're looking for that magic formula of negative energy balance, which equals weight loss, which by the way, they're ruling as kind of a falsity. This calories in, calories out doesn't hold true anymore. But because we're full of hormones <laughs> that dictate everything in terms of our size. But, you know, it's also interesting that I teach at the Eating Disorder Institute in the University of New Hampshire at Plymouth. And many, many, many of my students, they come from all disciplines, but many of my students have eating disorders or are recovering from eating disorders that are actually going through this institute to get their certification. So it's not uncommon. And many, many of the people in the world of the treatment of eating disorders are recovered. And what's wonderful is that we're all able to come out now. I mean, when I first got into the field, we didn't talk about it. In fact, our supervisor says, do not 
not say a peep that you are from recovery, which was very different from the substance use world because all the counselors in substance use are recovered. I mean, I think it's a prerequisite for the most part. But anyway, people are coming out, (laughs) if you will, from their backgrounds. And so I readily talk about my recovery with all my participants and clients as well. And I think that they find that to be authentic and real and they feel understood. And I think from talking to other and having been experienced through other addiction, you're connecting with people differently when you actually have been through it than teaching from a place of theory only. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it gives some credibility. I mean, I teach a lot of science. I mean, I have my doctorate. I think it's important to have the background and the knowledge. I used to have something on my website that says, it's not as important for what I know as it is of how I care. Something like that. I butchered it, but essentially, (laughs) (laughs) I haven't talked, but essentially they want your heart, not your head. Yes. So let's get into the topic at hand. The focus on the interview is about how our brain influence our eating choices behavior. So let's begin with the definition of, in your definition of emotional Mm -hmm. eating versus binge eating versus overeating. Like, how do we set this all apart? Right. I see it as a continuum. Mm -hmm. And the center that I work for, Green Mountain at Fox Run has a women's center for binge and emotional eating. It was very intentional that we talked about emotional eating because whether or not you meet the criteria for a diagnosis of binge eating disorder doesn't matter because we know that childhood emotional eating is a huge risk factor for developing binge eating disorder. So we know it's a progressive disorder. Dieting fuels it restriction and what I call food insecurity. And I'm going to talk about that when it comes to the brain. And so as we move ourselves through the continuum, it just has to do with intensity and frequency as it gains speed. And as we get older, one of the things that Michelle and I talk about in our book is that there's this cycle and there's a restrictive cycle always as part of the binge cycle. When you look at binge eating disorder, some people don't realize that there's just as much restriction, whether it is just thinking about restricting in terms of the diet mind. It doesn't necessarily have to be restriction in terms of real restriction anymore, because as we know, the longer one has binge eating disorder, the less of the restriction and the more the binging. And that's why We see all different body sizes of people that have binge eating disorder, but my experience is that the younger they are, the longer they can stay within that restrictive cycle before they binge. As they get older, the diet fatigue sets in, and then they have more of a binge cycle. The restrictive cycle only is driven by the restrictive mind, but we react out of the thoughts of restriction, not just the restriction itself. So this is really truly a biological, neurological, and psychological process. And I want to reinforce here, we react to the thought, Mm -hmm. not necessarily the action. And that holds true well beyond binging. It's the entire life cycle. Mm -hmm. But it's very interesting. So what is the restrictive mind? Let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that comes from the cultural thin ideal drives the restrictive mind, okay? And so let me get into this concept of food insecurity because whether or not you have had 
no access to food. I hear stories all the time of I was raised by a single mother. We didn't know where food was coming from or when we would get access to food or families that have a whole bunch of brothers and the sister, you know, I had to get the food before it was gone. This idea that there's not going to be enough, okay, that drives the food restriction. Now, what we know is from the study of the marginalized populations, poverty, we understand that for instance, inner city Philadelphia, you go down there, there's not a grocery store in sight. It's all a fast food lane because that's really the most economical way to eat. So we talk about food insecurity there from a perspective of social justice in terms of our wacky society saying, you need to eat clean. Well, give me a break. I just need to eat. And then there was some recent studies on food insecurity out of San Antonio, Texas, in the rural agricultural area. And they actually did a study on the people that frequented the food banks and what their psychological profile was. And they found that there were a higher level of eating disorders or as high a level of eating disorders of binge eating or bulimia in this poor population. Then what takes us back to, and I'm jumping around here, but to the Keys study. Of course, the Keys study was done when we actually could experiment on humans. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, what it was is they put men through starvation to observe the behavior of people that were being starved. And they become psychotic, the bizarre behaviors, obsess about food night and day, and hoard food and binge on food and so this is the type of behavior that comes out of food insecurity, because what happens is what's unique to humans is the frontal lobe or the executive function, prefrontal cortex, and that's unique to us. And that's our ability to reason and to plan and to have intention and to be able to pause, and that's where mindfulness comes in, and to be able to make a rational choice. But we operate actually more out of our midbrain, mammalian brain, our reptilian brain, which is the central nervous system brainstem, and we react out of fear. And so what happens is even though we know we have enough food around, that's really operating out of our human brain, the rest of our brain, in terms of more primitive forms of our brain, it thinks we're starving. And so that's why what happens when somebody goes on a restrictive diet is it's signaling and say, ho, oh, there's something going on here. We're not going to get enough food. And so we're not operating out of our human brain. We're operating out of our design, our human design for survival. And so as I kind of pull this together, this understanding is that anybody that has been subjected to, oh boy, I'm not going to get enough food, it's not rational, but our body, biological and neurological, will shift because it's afraid that it's going to die. And so just think about it. You know, I talk about this to the women at Green Mountain in a talk I do the morning after they have what we call this kind of a decadent dessert mindful eating process. And we usually serve brownies and we cut them into squares and put them on a small dessert plate. We hand it out to everybody. And I say to everybody, okay, how many of you, now be really honest, please, but how many of you, when you were served your brownie last night for the mindful eating exercise, how many of you had this startle response in your body and your gut as you looked at your piece and noticed that it wasn't as good as somebody else's piece? 
meaning they got more or they have the gooey corner or they have more frosting. And so I said, folks, that's what we call that startle response, right? That gut anxiety that comes up just this briefly. Of course, you know, exaggerated would be you're on the freeway and someone turns into your lane and, you know, you have the electricity that goes up and down your body and this total stress response. There is a slight stress response when somebody sits down and looks at whether or not they got enough. That's food insecurity. Everybody, oh my gosh, I did that. I couldn't believe it. I felt so embarrassed to think that I would have this stress reaction to not getting enough because our human brain, our rational brain will say, there's more brownies back there. And if I want more, I can get because that's our philosophy. We're never going to say how much. Just we need to help them to determine that because we're trying to unravel that food insecurity. Now, food insecurity drives all eating disorders, okay? And so that's what happens in terms of when either somebody was controlling your food as a young person, which most people say that, you know, if they started out as a little chubby like I did, then everybody gets concerned. And so my brother was able to eat this, but I wasn't able to eat that as my body changed and whatnot. And so we had food rules. And then this is driven by the thin ideal. And so we create this food restrictive that I can have only this much. And see, the diet industry, they're banking on that because what they're telling you is what you can eat, when you can eat, how much you can eat, you can only have this much. So all the rules, this many points, this many calories, this many grams, these food groups and not these food groups. So there's these rules, but that's feeding our brains food insecurity. And so then when you look at the eating process, you have been programmed to think, I'm not going to get enough. I can only have so much. And we also, as we know, we're programmed to eat really crappy food (laughs) because that's all we get, right? You know, I remember coming home from diet center or wherever, Nutrisystem, I can't remember. There was too many to count with my bag of food for the whole week. This is all I get. I only get 22 points. So what happens is we're actually responding to that food insecurity all day long. Our brain is looking for when can we get food? How much can I have? When am I going to get it? Because if I don't, I'm not going to make it. And that is the survival brain. So what you call the food insecurity is really buried within our survival brain. Correct. Yeah. And I want to clarify something here because we do have wide number of women coming to us that when we talk about the history of food, they don't necessarily have been deprived of food when they were young. However, for the last number of years, they've dieted in removing food groups. Mm-hmm. And it kind of makes it this place where We're not restricting the quantity. We're not counting calories. We're only removing, I don't know, food grains or Mm -hmm. keto, paleo, whatever. Pick the one. We're not going to restrict the amount of food. So it's not dieting, but we're just going to restrict a food group. Does that trigger the food insecurity as well? Well, Yes, because even though they say Mm -hmm. ancient time and paleo, our body needs enough carbohydrate. Mm Mm-hmm. And if we're not getting it, it freaks. It's like, I have to increase my blood sugar by going to my glycogen stores. And once my glycogen stores are out or my circulating glucose in my brain, I'm toast. 
Or simply by putting a limit on a food group you can't have, uh -huh, that right. alone would trigger the food insecurity. Am I correct? I think so. I think so. This is, like I said, biological. I think it's neurological and psychological. I think we cannot separate how this all works together. And I think as people understand this, it helps especially around this idea of willpower, because it's a natural and automated impulse for us to eat food when our body thinks that it's going to starve. And so now we're going to a place where the vast majority of the population is exposed or has this place of food insecurity, but only some of us will go to that place of binging in response to this food insecurity. How is that link happen in our mind and what caused it to trigger the binge eating or overeating behavior for certain women and not others? Well, we do know that 50% of the population have a genetic predisposition to that eating disorder when it comes to binge eating. And so we have a vulnerability. And so what happens is when we get a strong dose of food insecurity, It's the trigger for us where other people, if they don't have the vulnerability, you know, just like somebody can, can diet and lose a bunch of weight and not react with anorexia, right? Because it's the energy restriction that triggers in the brain anorexia. Just the same as very similarly, the feeling of food insecurity triggers that binge respond with a binge action out of the restriction. And then we, we also have this whole thing about the habit loop, right? Okay. <laughs> that's another part of the brain. That's the mammalian brain. Okay, so the habit loop also contributes to this. Now, let me give you an example of my neuropathway habit loop. I was a that emotional eating as a child. And so little did I know that I had an anxiety disorder. We understand it now, but as a child, I didn't understand that I had an anxiety disorder. I just knew that I easily was frightened. I was always afraid. I didn't feel safe. I had these butterflies in my stomach and those went away. All was well. I was going to be okay right? I wasn't dying in terms of anxiety disorder. And so, because it worked really well, it calmed me down. And so what happened was my dad had a restaurant that he ran. And after school, I would go down to the restaurant and help dad out. And I would go into the stock room and he had these huge, what we now know, a Costco size boxes, just full of sugar packets. And I would get those little caddies. And my job was to go and fill the caddies on all of the tables with sugar. I was obsessed with these sugar packets. And I filled my pockets with sugar packets and I would go into the women's restroom and I would shut the door and I would slide down onto the floor and I would slowly open up the top of these sugar packets and put the raw sugar right on my tongue and let it just melt and glide down my throat. And when I came out after doing that, It was just like life was good again, okay? I can breathe. I don't have all this buzziness in my chest and my butterflies in my stomach. And so I created a neural pathway and the trigger was anxiety and the reward was the anxiety went away, okay? And so some people say, oh, well, you have an addiction to sugar. No, I've created a habit loop based on having anxiety and it goes away. And we know that pathway occurs that way because we know that food, takes us from a sympathetic nervous system response or stress response into a parasympathetic response. And the reason why it does that is because the digestive system only behaves and operates correctly 
in a rest and digest or the parasympathetic nervous system. And so what I was doing was actually regulating my nervous system through the use of sugar. Now we know there's even studies, there's a researcher out at Dartmouth in New Hampshire that just shows pictures of food and the central nervous system corrects itself out of the stress response. And so we know that food does a really good job of this. So I have this habit loop. I have this really ingrained default. So I don't even have to think about it. For instance, it's interesting when I'm feeling more vulnerable and I'm worn out and my circuits are overloaded and I'm not taking care of myself and self-care and not keeping myself regulated, I go to certain gas stations to get gas or I go to the drugstore because I got to pick up a prescription, but I find myself in the aisle where the good and plenties are. Now, this pink and white, you know, anxiety pills is what they are. And I don't even think about it. I grab them and I find myself in my car. Now, I don't binge on sugar anymore, but this is a real good indicator. My husband will see in the console of the car, he might see an empty good and plenty box and he'll say, are you taking care of yourself, honey? (laughs) He says, I noticed your anxiety pills. We're in the console of the car. And that's really a loving response. It's kind of like, okay, when's the last time that you did an act of self-care? You're overstressed. What do you need to do to take care of that? And so that's that habit loop that even though I have recovery and I'm not hurting myself necessarily, that these habit loops are default when I get more vulnerable. And that's when the concept of neuroplasticity comes in. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Because you've explained extremely well how habits are constructed. And for the listener, that's emotional eating, right? There's this path, I don't feel good. Uh-huh. And there's a connection that was created through our own action and our own choices to make ourselves feel better with food. And that connection is there. Right. But it can be undone. Absolutely. And that's the hope because we know that neuroplasticity allows us to change that. Now, the best way to change a habit because of food insecurity, when it comes to habits with food, the best way is to add new aspects to that chain of the response rather than to pull it away. For instance, because that's going to trigger the food insecurity. So you have to do this very interestingly and carefully. And so what I teach folks is that we first look at what we call our habit pairings. So that's the first thing to do is look at what goes together with your food behavior. Five o'clock in the afternoon, I get in my car and I start eating or I stop and go through the drive through and I start eating because I take this particular path. Now, the biggest habit pairing that there is with overeating and binge eating is television and eating. And that's the biggest one that there is by far. And so what happens is when I tell people, when I first started working with women and I said, okay, we're going to have to break that pairing. This is before I knew better. We're going to have to break that pairing between food and the TV. And I got deer in the headlights, like absolutely freaked out that there is, you know, from these people, like you're crazy, especially if they live by themselves, because there's a whole nother aspect to this that's fascinating to me. And that is the food relationship connection. So the TV becomes the relationship. So what happens is I always say, okay, let's try to move this more like an ocean liner turning instead of a speedboat. 
Now, I've been up to Alaska. I had the privilege to go up and do a cruise in Alaska. And this huge, if you've ever done this, they take these huge ships into these small fjords to meet the glacier. And you think, how in the world are we going to turn around and get out of here? There's no way. There's not enough room to turn around. But what happens is the ship goes in there and then what it does is it takes all day long, like 12 hours of just twirling from the stern to the bow and rotate in this long process of this turn, right? And so till you're heading out of the fjord and toward the ocean again. It's fascinating because that's the only way they can do it. They can't make a regular turn. And so that's what I say about be patient with yourself, have compassion. This is going to take some time. So how are we going to slowly add things before we can start pulling things away so that we can create a different pathway? So an example would be keep your television on, but let's sit at a table and eat and make the pairing of eating with the table or make the pairing of the table with food that's plated, right? Instead of out of a box or a carton. Let's start creating that connection. And then slowly, as then you start adding in people, and maybe even if you live by yourself, we have participants that leave our program that FaceTime one another during mealtime because of that connection that they need. And so then that replaces the TV, and so after you start doing that, then you can turn the TV off and we don't trigger the food insecurity, that fearful aspect of it. So that's how you change habits. When I wanted to start drinking more water, now they've got these water bottles that like beep and light up when you're supposed to drink, which is just ridiculous. To me, it's all externally driven, kind of like the Fitbit telling you when to go to the bathroom. No, I don't. But anyway... So what I said, okay, what are some things that I do every day? And usually it's on the bookends. I have the most ingrained habits that I have is first thing in the morning or the last thing at night. So in the morning, the first thing I do, of course, I get up, I go to the bathroom. And then I get up and then I brush my teeth every morning. I brush my teeth every night. So what happens is I decided that every time I brush my teeth, I have this big, beautiful crystal glass. I drink a full you know, 12, 16 ounces of water. And that's how I started because I connected it to a habit loop that's already there. And for me to get what I love, my exercise, I have a Peloton spinning bike. It's the biggest luxury and most wonderful thing in my life because I love to spin. I love to cycle. I've been a cyclist forever. And so what I do is I do it in the morning and it's part of the sequence, you know, get up, go to the bathroom, brush my teeth, splash my face, go get my coffee, come back, put on my, my biking shoes, get on the bike. Now, my rule also is, so I don't feel like I have to, and there's a brilliant book called Many Habits that explains this better than I can. But what it is, is that I say, I only have to be on the bike for five minutes. That's it. My goal is five minutes. Like the guy that wrote the book, Many Habits, he says he was completely sedentary. And he says, my goal is one push-up. That's it. But see, our brain is competitive. And so rather than give us a goal that's bigger and you feel defeated, you give yourself and then you go. And what happens is that, oh, well, five minutes. I'm feeling good. I don't want to get off my bike. Oh, I like this song. I'm going to stay on the bike until the end of this song. Oh, this Nick song. I love that. I'm going to do that. And so what happens is you end up doing these things and they become pleasurable and reward and part of that pathway or that habit 
And especially in the morning or especially at night, for instance, you know, doing some adding just one yoga move, like legs up the wall. It's very, very relaxing, whatnot, to add to your sequence of getting ready for bed. You don't have to like sign up for a yoga class at the studio for four days a week. You just start with legs up the wall before you go to bed or meditation or whatever it is. That's how you change habits. And it's much easier to stimulate the reward center because you have small goals that Mm -hmm. you are able to achieve. You feel rewarded and you want more instead of having those big goals that you're not going to achieve for more than a week. Yeah, you go, yeah, I'm a superstar. Yeah. Right? I did five minutes on my bike. (laughs) I've meditated every day just for two minutes. But you know what? It's two more minutes that you've never done before. Exactly. We're going to take a quick break from our chat to give a shout out to our show sponsor, Health IQ. And I am so excited to be partnering with them and bringing you forward an innovative insurance company for the American listener. Health IQ helps health conscious people like yogis, runners, cyclists, weightlifters to get lower rate on their life insurance. Just like you save money on your car insurance for being a good driver, Health IQ saves you money on life insurance for living a health conscious lifestyle. Isn't it time that we get rewarded for our good health choices? Now, how do you get started? Very simply by qualifying through the Health IQ quizzes. And also, listen to this, if you submit actual training data through the various apps available, you can save additional dollars. To get started now, simply go to stephaniedodzie.com forward slash health IQ and take the test to see if you qualify. And when you get to speak to an agent, mention the code beyond the food to support the show. So get started now on saving money on your life insurance. Now a shout out to our other show sponsor, Muse. And I'm very grateful to team up with Muse to bring you the first tool in the world to help you learn to meditate at home. Muse is a wearable brain sensing headband that measure our brainwave and sends the feedback to an app on our personal device. I love my Muse because it transform my meditation practice. I wear it daily for my 10 minute session in the morning and it coaches me through my practice by giving me real time feedback on what's happening in my brain and helping me refocus during my meditation. I love this partnership with Muse because it brings the tool to the first timer and it helps expand the practice of the more advanced meditator. So it's time for you to get your Muse on and learn to calm your mind through meditation. And here's the thing, as a listener of the Going to Beyond the Food show, you get 15% off of the purchase of your Muse. To take advantage of this offer, simply go to stephaniedodzie.com forward slash muse. And again, the URL is stephaniedodzie.com forward slash muse and register through this URL to get 15% off. So join me in my 10 minutes meditation practice every morning and get our muse on and go beyond the food together. So let's talk about mindfulness, because you've wrote a book, it was actually your doctorate in behavioral health, the mindful eating cycle. Let's talk about this place or the role 
of mindfulness in healing our relationship to food? Well, especially for those with binge eating, and it's true with emotional eating too, but the process is really about detachment. Something about the brain and food cravings is that we know that we have a much stronger liking, meaning that we obsess about getting the food, getting alone to eat the food. Then once we start eating the food, the liking is much less than the wanting. And because we know that the physiology is that once we get the food, the reward has happened. It doesn't have to do with how much food, okay? It has to do with getting the food. And so what happens then is that our blood sugar corrects or raises or whatever we're trying to do for the physiological reward. But once we start eating, we're not tasting anymore, really. What we do are getting into the process of mesmerizing ourselves, (laughs) okay? So what happens is then we detach actually from the body and it's a protective mechanism, especially for those that binge eat or when we're eating something that right is a forbidden food because it's egodystonic, meaning it causes cognitive dissonance for us. And so what that means is that we would never do this consciously. I mean, how many people that are eating a pint or two of Ben and Jerry's ice cream when they're eating the whole thing with a spoon and sitting on the couch and just kind of going into this, you know, take me away into some detachment. How many people want to look at the calories that they're eating? How many looks at the food labels? Now, people might look at food labels when they're thinking about being good mm-hmm. and eating well. But when we're binging or eating things that are off limits to us in our restrictive mind, we don't want to know the calories. So really, this detachment is quite protective for us because I don't want to know how many calories I'm eating right now. I just want to eat. And I'm going to eat and eat until I've gotten my nervous system back in sync and I'm calm, especially at night. I get myself from all day being wound up to wound down so that I can go to sleep. And that's the premise of night eating is being able to get to sleep, but from a nervous system perspective. But what's happening is that this detachment is protective. And so until we really realize when we kind of come back to our sense of reality that we look around and we see, oh my gosh, I did this again. I can't believe. But see, we haven't been really attached to that process while we're doing it. That's why it's kind of automated. And so getting to mindfulness, I'm getting there, is that it's very difficult to eat with cognitive dissonance. It's really hard to eat in this way when we're being mindful. Because when we're mindful, we're engaging out of our human brain and not in our automatic processes or not out of impulse. Those are all subconscious. Those are all automated. And so what's happening is that it's bringing us to, it's waking us up when we become mindful so that we can kind of realize. And we know we're getting in recovery and we know we're doing better when when we're stopping in the middle of a binge or an overeating episode And we go, oh, this doesn't taste good anymore. Okay, I realize I'm doing this. I'm going to stop. And then we put the food down the garbage disposal or or whatever, and we get rid of it. That is the greatest progress that anybody can have. When you're stopping yourself in the middle of this process, it means that you've woken up, you're more mindful, you're engaging your executive function or your prefrontal cortex, and you're saying, this is not my intention. This is not what I want to do. And so I'm going to stop. Now, unfortunately, there's this personality structure that we have, especially those of perfectionists. It's the all or nothing thinking. So many will realize what they're doing and they go, oh, I already blew it. I might as well. 
Now, oh, I already blew it on my well, has caused the most damage to me in my life, both physically and psychologically. This idea that I'm not worth taking care of is like, I'm so bad. I'm so shameful that I have eaten this, that I might as well just keep hurting myself. Because one day in the future, when I follow through with all my intentions, which is all those intentions are in my prefrontal lobe, my human brain. When I do that, I won't be eating like this anymore. So, you know, I let me get it out of my system. It's my last supper. And so that's very, very damaging. So that's why I think along with some of this neuropathway reprogramming has to take place is we have to attend to our heart with self-compassion and realize that my tagline is, well, of course, well, of course you went back to your old habit. Your brain is meant to do that. It's going to pull you in that direction out of survival. And at the same time, do what makes you feel better. Because I teach people to experience the felt experience because that's intrinsic. And so the more that they can get in touch with feeling good, that is going to be the best motivator for long-term success. Because if your eating is driven by being good or if your eating is driven by looking good, those are both extrinsic drivers of change. And they're very short-lived. They can get you started in change. They can be a short-lived or a short-term change. But the only long-term and sustaining changes that you can do from a brain chemistry perspective is through the felt experience, is through mindfulness. It's through understanding, through interception, interception of understanding that when I eat in this way, I feel better. Now, you can kid yourself and say eating a bag of cookies is making you feel better, but I don't know anybody that feels better when their blood sugar spikes and then drops out of hypoglycemia. They don't feel better. And if you eat a whole bag of cookies, you're going to crave a big green salad. You will. If you're really paying attention of what it is, you want to eat to feel better. And so that's why when you're changing the neural pathways, very, very important to have the motivational driver of feeling good because that sensory experience, that felt experience is going to be what seals. That's the reward. That's the twinkle lights. It's going to seal the deal. It is. It's going to seal the deal. Oh, this feels good. Just the way is, is that when I get off of my bike in the morning, I say, wow, I feel good. I'm ready, right? I'm ready to face the day with confidence, head high, shoulders back. You're actually feeling the endorphin from doing the bike ride instead of eating the food. Exactly. Now, you can do anything too much, but it's not for everybody. But for me, the bike ride is a huge reward. And it is chemically when we look at the brain chemistry, right? We have endorphin flooding into our mind when we exercise. But as you said, the key here is not to overdo it. It's not to do this all or nothing. Now, is practicing mindfulness beyond the overeating or the binge a key in healing the relationship to food by being mindful most of the time in the day? Is that the key as well? Well, I think it's key because... We know there's been studies of the brain about people with anorexia and binge eating. This is where it's very similar. There's a place in the brain, the insula, that actually interprets the feedback from the sensory perceptors in the body 
and tells the brain how we feel and so that we can respond to how we feel from a feedback. But people with anorexia and binge eating have some alterations and limitations of being able to be aware and perceptive of what's happening in the body because we cut ourselves off from our body. So therefore, we don't know when we're hungry. We don't know when we're full. We don't know when we're exhausted. We don't know when we're feeling pain. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so what happens is that we have to slowly retrain and become more embodied and be able to recreate and heal that problem in the brain so that we can have a felt experience. Because if I first tell somebody when I'm working with them, okay, you want to eat when you're hungry and to stop when you're satisfied. Okay, so that would be kind of like a rule, which, you know, mindful eating isn't about rules, but some people interpret it that way. They don't know when they're hungry and they don't know when they're full. And so we can't take somebody that has this issue with the insula in the brain and just expect them to be able to process that really easily. So that's why we have to train as well. We can't go zero to 60 in mindful eating. We have to be able to slowly train that new process so that they can access that felt experience. And that's the whole people talking living in our head versus living in mm -hmm. our body. For most of us, and I know for me, I was purely head up to the moment where things broke down and I had to learn to be both head and body. And that's called reconnecting. I know it's a cliche, yeah. but mind body reconnecting right. to your body. That's what you're talking about here. True mindfulness. Exactly. And so I believe that needs to take place. And so now we get to body hate, body shame yes. and whatnot. And so we use at Green Mountain and Fox Run, we use and coined a term called body neutrality. And it's more of a mindful experience, mindful term, because I just did another podcast with body love. We hear a lot of body love. And we talked about this on this podcast about how, you know, some people that's unimaginable to love my body. But if we can just be neutral, meaning no judgment, positive or negative toward our body, but know that we need to pair in relationship with our body in order for us to have the healing experience. And so we come at it from a healing in terms of a scientific perspective, not from a place of, oh, you need to embrace your body and love your body. No, I have to work with my body as a team to be able to heal this process because I have to be able to engage enough in a relationship that I will respect what it tells me. And if I hate somebody, if I'm a relationship with somebody that I hate, I'm not going to listen to it. I'm not going to value what it has to say. I'm shun it. Mm -hmm. But that cannot occur. If you cannot connect to your body in a team, mind-body, to aid in this healing process through mindfulness, I don't believe it's ever going to be long-term because you're not going to change the neural pathway. So when somebody says, I hate my body, you know, our society has taught me to hate my body and I'm there. How can I get better? And I said, okay, don't think about hate and don't think about love. I want you just to think about your body from neutral terms, which means that mindfulness is, in fact, being in the present moment without judgment. Without labeling. Yes, exactly. So, and I love this. I think it's very interesting because we hear a lot of, you got to love your body to completely heal and you got to be in love with yourself. And the body positive movement put that out there, but it's extremely difficult to digest. I love this neutrality, simply removing the label of hatred. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, let's not label it. Let's not judge it. It just is. We live in a body and we either can work with it or not work with it. And self-acceptance in some way can be that. Simply being neutral towards your body as opposed to having to step from hatred to love from one day to another. Right. And so, yes, I'm pleased with the body positive movement. I think that in some ways that it is shifting our culture. I think that, for instance, even in the first scene, changes in the fashion industry. Yes. I think what it's done is open the eyes of the almighty dollar is driving it, but there's a big market for people in larger size bodies. And so I think that that's changing. I think that girls and young women, their attitudes to their bodies are changed because of the efforts with like body positive movement, education and whatnot. I see it in the younger people, not like, you know, when I was raised in the seventies as a teen and the thin ideal was just huge. I mean, your life would not be successful. You would not be happy unless you had a certain body. That was what I was indoctrinated to. And I don't see that. So I think it's good. But one of the aspects that I, and I don't get a lot of love about this stance. (laughs) In fact, I've gotten some hate mail or social media bashing, but I believe that there are so many women out there that they're so focused on their weight and losing weight is the answer that we have to reach their hearts. That's how we start meeting people where they're at. That's the market that needs us most. People that come to Green Mountain and Fox Run, I think it's great if they come and they're all in with the body positive movement. They're just one step ahead with that process. But most of the women come in loathing their bodies, thinking that losing weight is the only solution and whatnot. And I'm not promoting weight loss as the answer. I'm saying that we're not anti-weight loss. We're weight neutral. And so if you start working with your body and you start to be healing from the inside out, biologically, neurologically, and psychologically, then what happens is that it's the body's business. Your body's going to do what it's going to do. And if that includes shedding weight or girth or size, there's nothing wrong with that. Just the same as if you don't change, there's nothing wrong with that. It's the body's business. It's not anybody else's business what the size of your body is. And so what I find is that we do get people in and they have this transformational experience because they feel better. Mm-hmm. Because if they're a week, people come and they're reset, they're re-energized, they're getting in touch with their body again, they're balancing their blood sugar, they like themselves more because they've been introduced to self-compassion and mindfulness, and they simply feel better. And that's how we change people and let the body do what it's going to do. Amen to that. So I'm part of that same controversy as well, because I believe that for us, In order to reach a greater number of women, we need to adopt that philosophy instead of forbidding weight loss altogether. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That allows us to bring on more women. The challenge is the process of accepting what is Uh with the weight loss mindset. Absolutely. Now, remember I said that the way to long-term change is not driven by being good or looking good. The process of change is driven by feeling good 
and the felt experience. And so what happens is they learn that the first week that they come in, they understand the brain science about food insecurity and everything I've taught them. And so they have all the tools that they need in order to recover and to follow that path. And let's be body neutral. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the Green Mountain Fox Run as we're ending this interview here because we only have a few minutes. But it's an immersive experience. And that's what I like from all the other program out there is that you're actually in a center face to face with other women. Mm -hmm. Women like you. No judgment on bodies. No judgment on the way you're passing food. It's your peeps, right? It's a community. Mm hmm. And that is a program where people go in for a week, two weeks. Let's talk a little bit more about the details of how women can go to the center. Mm -hmm. Women come in and they check in on a Sunday evening and they go based on weeks and they check up by noon on a Saturday. Those are people that come for a week. We actually have a four-week program and many do that. We have an average stay, about two and a half weeks. But we know that busy woman, we know about access to time off or time away from your caretaking of your family and or finances. And so some women come for a week at a time over the course of several years to get the full experience. But anybody that comes for just a week gets the incredible foundation of the philosophy so that they can start shifting the way that they look at things. And so for your listeners, we are actually giving away a 10% discount for any of your listeners that are wanting to come to Green Mountain, which is in Vermont. It's Green Mountain at Fox Run. And the URL is fitwoman.com, F-I-T-W-O-M-A-N, fitwoman.com, Green Mountain at Fox Run. And you can get 10% off of shared accommodations through the end of this year if you mention this podcast. The Beyond the Food. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Thank you very much for doing that. And I just want to mention also, and we're not going to extend on this, but there's a large number of health coaches and health professional listening to the show. There's also tracks and training for health professional as well. Am I correct? Yes, we have extensive professional training that we give continuing education credits to. And those are an on-site activity as well. And so if you're a professional, you can go onto our website and go to the professionals page and it's called, I want to sign up for professional partners. And it'll also talk about when our next CE program, and they typically happen in the off season for us, which is February or in December. That's amazing. I want to thank you very much for having spent an hour with us, mm. which is longer than usual. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. only ask about 10% of the question I wanted to ask, but I think it's been a tremendous impact on our listeners because of the way you approach it, which is both mindfulness and mind and science. I think it's a very well-rounded approach. Thank you very much for your time today. Well, thank you for letting me speak passionately about what I believe in. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Wow, there you have it, ladies. Did it blow your mind? I know it did blow mine because I was filled with food insecurity my entire life growing up. From the time that I was first put on a diet to a few years ago when I was restricting food groups. So I hope it gave you a different perspective and the solution is so easy. So remember that if you know of someone in your life that 
this interview can have an impact on their life. You got to help me share this information, share it right from your listening device, from the show note at stephaniedoze.com slash one, two, nine, and give this information to someone else, to another woman that need this information so they can change their life. Now we have a great show coming up in a week from now, episode 131. And it's a topic that I've been wanting to talk about for a long time, but I hadn't find the right guest. And Elizabeth will come in and talk to us about sexuality and the place of our sexual life and our feminine power. You don't want to miss this because the impact of your sexual life is far reaching what you can imagine and the impact that it has on your craving. So can't wait to exploit that topic with Elizabeth. I love you and I look forward to hang out with you on the next episode. Did you know that nine out of 10 women are struggling with their relationship to food? Overeating, emotional eating, binging and craving are real. Clearly the solution we have been thought aren't working. I believe to have food freedom, it means that we must learn to have a relationship with our hunger so we can finally be at peace with food and eat normally without guilt or shame, which is why I wrote the Crave Cure Guide. I want to show you how to have a completely different relationship with food so that you can be in control of what you eat, achieve your goal, and be the powerful woman you were meant to be. The best part is this book and the step-by-step process is absolutely free. To receive your free copy, simply go to stephaniedodzier.com forward slash guide and we can get started right now.